0: Good morning, my name is Tim Ragsdale, one of the elders here at Desert Springs, serving as the local missions pastor. And our primary text this morning is going to be Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is often referred to as the chief of the penitential psalms, those psalms that express repentance to God. And before we get into that text, I think it's important for us to lay some groundwork. Um... We need to understand what is repentance before we go and look at this example of it. Psalm 51 is often the place that we would send people to see what real repentance looks like. So let's define it, and then we'll go see an example of it. I do realize that most of, most good preachers begin with some really good attention-getting story, and that I'm beginning with a definition. So uh, please... Forgive me um, and, and stick with me. But the definition of repentance um, from Grudem, from his systematic theology, says repentance is a heartfelt, heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You may have heard it referred to as a U-turn in the road of life where you're turning away from your sin to the Lord. There's a clear Implication of a significant change in your heart and in your direction. Scripture says some other things about repentance that I think are helpful for us. So let's look at a few of those. Repentance is something that we are all called, not only called, but commanded to do. In Acts 17, we see this, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So often we speak of repent, the call to repentance and faith as an invitation. But we need to understand that this is the kind of invitation that can't be refused without consequence. Scripture also teaches that repentance is urgent. And that the unrepentant are not safe. They need to be challenged, they need to be asked what, what Paul asked in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And he, we also see in scripture that repentance is something that God actually grants. We see this in Second Timothy chapter 2. In verse 24, we see how he's describing the servant of the Lord and how he should correct opponents with gentleness. And then he goes on to say, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And if time permitted, I could go into each of those three areas, how it's something we're commanded to do, something that's urgent, and something that God actually grants and demonstrate from Scripture, all of those are also true for believing faith. For they are Very tightly knit. Notice how in the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, it's stated beautifully. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties. Now, by faith there, we don't mean um, some irrational leap into the dark. Biblical faith, that is a believing trust. Repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. At the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Repentance, it's both something that's commanded of us, expected of us, we'll be held responsible before God, and yet it's something that God in his grace and mercy grants. As we never need to be perplexed about scriptures like these that seem to give a tension between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Because when we see those scriptures, when God's word speaks to our responsibility before him, those things we're commanded to do, our response is to be submission and obedience. And when God's word speaks to those things that tell us about his sovereignty, our response needs to be awe, comfort, gratitude, and worship. Never some foolish inference that, oh, because God's got things under control, it doesn't matter what I do. We don't need to be perplexed about those things. So that's repentance. As we continue to lay the groundwork I didn't forget, Psalm 51. As we lay the groundwork for that, we need to remember who David was. And many of you may remember David as the, uh, the young war hero who when he saw Goliath taunting the armies of, of Israel, he said, With this, he said, who is this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This youth that ought to give you goosebumps. And then when he was volunteered to go out and meet the Philistine, he had no armor because it wouldn't fit. He had nothing but a sling and a few stones. And Scripture says that he ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. A man's man, even as a youth. You may remember, David, as God's chosen and anointed king. That Scripture says whose kingdom shall be established before the Lord forever. Jesus, King Jesus, currently reigning, fulfills that role, the son of David. You may remember David as a man after God's own heart. How would you like to be remembered as a man or woman after God's own heart? And we find that in 1 Samuel 13 and Acts 13. David was a man after God's own heart. And it's even said of this great man of God, First uh, Kings 15, verse 5, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Well, it's this matter of Uriah the Hittite that's the subject of our text this morning. And now we're going to turn to Psalm 51 and begin there but we only get about a half a verse so far. To the choir master, a psalm of David when, David when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. The final step in laying the groundwork for Psalm 51 is we need to know the story. What was going on in David's life that would cause him to have to write such a psalm? So we're gonna go to Second Samuel chapter 11. I'm gonna begin in verse two. So David inquires about the woman. And he finds out that not only is she married, and that's enough, he finds out that she's married to one of his own elite, mighty men. Those men who have served faithfully with him from the beginning. Those men who right now, at this moment, were out risking their lives, defending his reign, defending his kingdom. And instead of going to God in gratitude, saying, God, Thank you, thank you for blessing my loyal servant with this beautiful woman. Way to go, Uriah. Lord, thank you for blessing me with a beautiful wife, or wives in his case, but Lord, help me always to find my delight in her. Now instead of preaching to himself, he listened to himself. He listened to the lust of his heart. And then he did the unthinkable. He took her. We find that Bathsheba then gets pregnant. And his sin spreads to deceit as he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah home under false pretense, expecting that he would go and be with his wife and the pregnancy be thought to be his. But it didn't work. And then he decides to have Uriah killed. The snowball of his sin continues to grow. As he um, has his general Joab put betray his own man by putting him in the fiercest of the fighting and then draw back, so that he's killed. David even sends the orders to Joab by the hand of Uriah. This is David, the great man of God. So, guys, take that as a warning. Be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. But hey, David's plan worked. He even got the girl in the end, right? Lust, theft, adultery, deceit, murder. David sinned greatly before the Lord. And then we get to this seemingly understated statement at the end of the chapter. The thing that David had done Displeased the Lord. In chapter 12, we get to meet the very brave and faithful prophet, Nathan. The Lord sends him to David and, said, and has him tell him the story of the rich man who had many lambs that he could serve to his guests. But when he decided he needed one, he didn't take one of his own lambs, he went to his poor neighbor who had only one. And this neighbor had own, this one lamb that this neighbor had, he loved and cherished as if it were one of his own children. So the, the rich man takes one of his own, slaughters it, and serves it to his guests. And when David hears this story, he is indignant. Chapter 12, verse 5 says, And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Remember that. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Nathan then goes on to describe God's great provisions for David. The things that David should have been thankful for. He goes on to describe His sin completely. He completely exposes David's sin and then he describes some of the consequences of David's sin and then we get to David's response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Thankfully, we have Psalm 51 to expand on this confession from David. And we're going to go there in just a a moment, but let's see how this thing plays out because it's very important. Then Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did the, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, did you catch all of that? Yes, he describes a, again the greatness of David's sin. He, he, he also describes some of the terrible consequences of those sin, of that sin. But did you see what he said first? The Lord has put away your sin, has literally caused your sin to pass away. Guys, that is a scandalous grace. Imagine for a moment if you were Uriah's friends or extended family. Scandalous grace. So now, let's turn to Psalm 51. And let's see what kind of repentance that God both grants and responds to with a scandalous grace, the kind of grace that you need, the kind of grace that I need. Psalm 51, beginning where we left off. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Note here his appeal is to your steadfast love, to your abundant mercy. But what does David know of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy? Where does that language come from? Well, let's go to the Torah. Exodus 34. In verse 6, we find the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that verse goes on, and there's a whole sermon in the way that it goes on. But let's focus here. David knew that God was both just in that he would not clear the guilty, but also merciful. That through some mysterious work of redemption, God would make a way. And David could believe in a way for God to to make it where some sinners would not be counted among the guilty. Isn't that awesome? David... Didn't have the full story yet, but he could believe in God's will, in God's ability to make a way for sinners not to be counted among the guilty. The truly penitent don't appeal to anything in and of themselves, but appeal to God's love and mercy and rest upon and believe in God's provision for sinners. Verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Notice here how David owns his sin. In these last three verses alone, five times he says, my transgression." My iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin. He owns the sin. He not only owns it, he begins to magnify it. He's against you and you only. He's not saying here he hasn't hurt people. Uriah, Bathsheba, the child, all the people he drew into his sin. But he's beginning to recognize that all of his sin was ultimately against God. And they go beyond a mere offense to man. Then he goes on to vindicate God rather than himself. So often when we are confronted with our own sin, we want to justify ourselves and our sin. But no, David owns his sin and yet justifies God. Knowing, as the truly penitent, know that God would be perfectly just to judge us. And our appeal Our request is for God's mercy rather than justice. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this is not some lame attempt to pass the blame onto his mother. Again, as David is magnifying his sin, he's beginning to see that his problem is not just his list of offenses. His problem is those things that come to him naturally and he knows without God's help he will do more of the same or even worse. He's beginning to realize that his greatest problem isn't what he's done, but what he is. Jesus later said, in verse uh, Matthew 15, verse 19, he said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Notice how closely those corresponded to the things David had just done. The truly penitent recognize that their need for a Savior extends beyond the forgiveness of of a little list or a big list of their transgressions. But their need for a Savior extends to the very core of their being. We We notice in David's other penitential psalms, he, he often mentions his bones with respect to the anguish that he feels in conviction over his sin. Next, we see that the truly penitent, in these next verses, that the truly penitent not only want to be forgiven, they want to be transformed. The truly penitent want to be holy. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Just as David knows that his need for a savior extends to his very core. He knows that he can look to God for a new heart. Newly created heart. A right, steadfast Or firm and willing spirit, and David had seen King Saul be anointed for a time as king, but then be justly rejected for his sin. And David knows that he deserves the same thing. So therefore, he prays, "God, don't give me what I deserve. I pray for mercy, not justice." As we move on, before we move on to verse twelve. I think it's interesting to note here what david doesn't focus on what got him into this in the first place he doesn't he doesn't focus or even mention sexual purity at this point instead of uh when you think about sin itself you have a bullseye and you're a a marksman or an archer how many different ways are there to miss the mark An infinite number of ways. And David, instead of picking out the particular ways in which he had missed the mark or sinned and offended God, he focused instead on the mark itself. Because he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we are satisfied in God and in God's gracious provisions, we're not looking elsewhere for our joy and for our satisfaction. They have a saying over at Desiring God Ministries. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And Paul wrote about it in Philippians 3. I'll begin in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Hang on to that. Righteousness from God. Verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God In Christ Jesus. The goal we should be straining forward for. Is knowing God in Christ. When you think about Olympic sprinters. What is the prize that they seek? They want that gold medal. But when they get down in the blocks. And the gun goes off. They run towards and strain forward for. The tape at the the finish line. Not one of them. Runs out of his lane, across the field, over to the platform, and grabs the gold medal. Guys, we, like David, need to stop chasing the prize and strain forward toward the goal. And the goal is knowing God in Christ Jesus. Verse 13. Matter of fact, let me back up a minute. David elsewhere said, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that great and sounding news? That is great news, and it's even better than it sounds. You might recall last week when Ryan spoke about how God, the Holy Spirit, fixes our prayers on the way up. Well, thank God, God also begins to transform and change our desires. Because my miserable heart and your miserable heart could come up with some desires that God has no intention of fulfilling. So God, therefore, gives us the desires themselves and fulfills them in us. And thank God for that. Now, verse 13. We begin to start seeing the outward result of the inner transformation that David seeks. It says here, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That transformation will turn David into a fruitful and faithful herald or ambassador for God. Verse 14, we begin to see how David seeks deliverance from his sin unto true and acceptable worship. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you would not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I want you to see how it continues, how he he extends this desire for for, for true and acceptable worship to God. Beyond himself to his people. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. So let's take now a closer look. At what these right sacrifices are. We see here that David mentions those religious rites that God put in place for his people to worship him. But also in verse 16, we see that even when people are doing the worship that God had established for his people, it's not acceptable to him if it comes from a proud or unbroken heart. And what do we know about those animals and and what those animals foreshadowed? Those animals of sacrifice foreshadowed our perfect Savior, our perfect Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. And what we know about all of those, the animals themselves and Christ, is that they had to be spotless, without blemish, and unbroken. But not so with the sinner's heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. He would despise blemished animals, blemished sacrifices, but not so with the sinner's heart. Now with all this talk of repentance and brokenness and contrition and godly sorrow, you may be asking, okay, what about the joy part? What about the joy part? Well, part of David's psalm here is a request for restoration unto joy. And this is not a call to live A discouraged, downcast, defeated, or sad life. Contrary to what the world would tell us, though, our joy is not found in the pursuit of those prizes. It's not found in money. It's not found in power. It's not found in lovers. It's not found in the perfectly restored Hot Rod or Harley. It's not found in a thriving ministry. Our joy is found in its source. Guys, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his uh, Religious Affections book, All gracious affections, feelings, emotions, that are sweet to Christ are are brokenhearted affections. A a truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, brokenhearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. And their cry, even when it is unspeakable. <laughs> Let me try that again. And their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble and broken-hearted joy. Edwards understood that this brokenness was not against joy. was not against happiness. But it was against pride how do we apply though what we what we learn about repentance what we see in this example of repentance from David before I get personal let me ask those of you who are ambassadors for Christ and if you're wondering if that's you 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 we are those who claim the name of Christ are ambassadors for Christ who've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation God making his appeal through us the gospel the gospel so in your testimony of the gospel, and, and I don't just mean your, your conversion experience, I mean your testimony of the gospel itself, those essential truths that people need to be taught and need to understand, need to believe, what are we as his ambassadors commissioned to call sinners to do? We well, might be surprised to find out that we are not commissioned to persuade Or manipulate people into repeating a prayer. As if it were some magical incantation. That opens the doors of heaven. You will find nothing like that in scripture. But what you will find. Repeatedly. Is the call for people to repent. And believe the gospel. Now excuse me as I. Pull out my my scripture machine gun. And throw a bunch of these at you. But I want you to see the clear pattern. In the Gospels, in the early Church, of this call, we begin with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, who became who came preaching. Matthew three one it says John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see Jesus begins his preaching ministry this way. Matthew four seventeen, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent." For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, in another place, he sends out his disciples two by two. In Mark 6, 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. We see Peter, not long after denying his Lord, after having been empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, now out boldly proclaiming the gospel, bringing knowledge of sin And then he says this in Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, on Mars Hill, takes advantage of this idol to an unknown God. And he he begins to describe to them the one true God. And then he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then I'll just give you one more. When Paul is before King Agrippa and he's describing his message, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, this Acts 26, 19, if you're jotting them down. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. At the beginning of this message, uh, I was talking to you about how God had provided a way for sinners, for some sinners, not to be counted among the guilty. And there was a, this mysterious work of redemption that made that possible. Well, that mysterious work of redemption Is the gospel. That God so loved the world. That in this way. God loved the world. That he sent his son. That whosoever should believe in him. Would not perish. But have everlasting life. God sent a substitute. That would be. Counted guilty in our place. Th- in the place of those who would repent and believe the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you remember that from Philippians 3? A righteousness from God. And here it is, the good news. Now, in a group this size, there are no doubt people here who have never repented of their sin and believed in this good news. And there are no doubt others among you who maybe you're trusting in a prayer that you once repeated, that maybe somebody held up to you as some, again, hellfire insurance. If you're like me, you did it many times. My encouragement to you, as gently as I can, and I say this to everyone, if you are not brokenhearted over your sin before God, if you claim to name the, uh, claim to name, the, the name of Christ and have done so for a time and you are not growing and you, to hate the sin that you once loved, then you have good reason to doubt whether you know Christ at all. And my exhortation to you is to repent and believe the gospel And to believers among you. Repentance is for you too. I could change the clip. On my scripture machine gun here. And there are multiple scriptures. That talk to the believers. About repentance. We have one where Jesus is speaking to the church. In Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says. Those whom I love I reprove reprove and discipline. So be zealous. And repent. Many of you may know the story of. How Martin Luther, he he wrote his 95 theses, theses. And he took them and he nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And began what we call the Protestant Reformation. But are you aware of what number one of the 95 theses said? Let me share that with you. He said, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent. He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance now don't, don't get me wrong um, if you have put your believing trust in Christ if you're begi- just beginning to see the fruits of repentance in your life if, if your brothers and sisters around you can attest to the fruits of repentance in your life your salvation is secure because it rests in his faithfulness not yours isn't that good news this continuing work that God is doing in, in our lives, where he's transforming us more and more into the image of his son, we call it sanctification. Becoming more and more set apart, holy, sanctified. It is a cycle. We become aware of sin in our lives. God's Holy Spirit illuminates his word and we see, we begin to see sin in our lives. We repent and we believe. We believe two important things. We believe that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover it. And we believe that the Holy Spirit will will and can empower us to resist that sin. So knowledge of sin, repentance and belief, and growth. Growth in gratitude, in maturity, in holiness, and in that fruit of the Spirit called joy.